My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. And as much as I love the guests that we have on, I appreciate even more the impact of their stories, their messages, their lives on yours. So I'm asking you to take just a moment to do me a big favor. I'd like you to take a survey so that we can better understand what it is about our Live Inspired podcast that you love, what's working for you, maybe what's not working perfectly for you, what more you'd like to hear about, and maybe a special guest you'd like us to bring on. You can take this survey by visiting me online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Again, here we go, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Come on. I really want these podcasts to be as best as they can. I want them to challenge your thinking and elevate your lives. So take just a moment right now, help us make this better, not only for you, but for our entire community. Your feedback matters. So go again right now to John O'Leary, inspires.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe, and hello, my friends. Thrilled that you're with us for this episode of Live Inspired with John O'Leary. As you all know by now, I love books. I love books. I have a pretty extensive library of of books that I have either in my home office or my actual office. Now, I don't read them electronically because to me, books are like an old friend. I like them a little bit beat out, a little bit frayed, a little bit weathered. I like to mark them up a little bit, know where they've been. But in seeing all of this, I trust them and I know them. And I love them. And I want to share with you today five books that are lined up in one row on my bookshelf at home. Here they are. Listen for the commonality here. I thought it was just me. The Gifts of Imperfection. Uh, Third, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness, and most recently one that I was forced to read electronically because it just came out and I'm in love with this one as well. So number six is this, Dare to Lead. Well, the author of these incredible books is Brene Brown and she is gonna be joining us today on the Live Inspired Podcast. Brene is a researcher, she's a speaker, she's a prolific writer. She reminds us of the power that authentic leadership and courage and vulnerability and wholehearted living have to elevate our families, our schools, and our organizations. Her TED Talk on vulnerability is a top five most viewed in history. That's craziness, viewed more than 30 million times. And I'm gonna talk to you today, we're talking about expanding perception, and so I wanna talk to you and tell some stories about a piece of my research that fundamentally expanded my perception um, and really actually changed the way that I live and love and work and parent. She's a mother, she's a partner, she's a friend, she's a fellow sojourner, she's awesome, and she's unafraid to share the profoundly ordinary and important stories such as this one, ready? Fighting over deli meat with her husband. More on that one in a moment. My friends, open wide your hearts and your minds. I want you to be courageous today. I want you to dare greatly today because we get to hang out with one of my heroes and a friend, Brene Brown. Brene, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. 
I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you about all things. Well, so, thank you for having me on. I'll let you choose. You want to start with the uh, the deli meat and your husband, or do you want to talk uh, about the work that you're doing today? <laughs> oh, look, we can start either place. I wonder if people need <laughs> to know me a little bit better to give some grace on the deli meat. How about story. we we'll, 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 um, we'll follow up with the deli meat, Brene? For those who uh, heard the introduction, but they're not really sure yet, still of the work that yeah. you do today. Why don't you paraphrase what I just said and and more succinctly tell us what you do professionally? Sure. Um, I am a research professor at the University of Houston, and I've spent the last 20 years studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. And the last seven specifically, looking at what does the future of leadership look like? What is it going to take? And what are people out there? What are the top kind of transformational leaders across the world saying that they need in, in leaders moving forward? So that's that's what I'm doing right now. So those those buzzwords that they appear in all of your work and they they seem to have appeared for as long as I've been tracking with you, shame and vulnerability and courage. I'm assuming when you write about something like this, that that was just naturally the upbringing you had. You know, I I think uh, we all have a story. It's just not the story we tell the world. And as I've learned more and more and more about your heart and your story, what has surprised me maybe most is how how much you've grown from the little girl that you were. So if you don't mind, Brene, we're going to go way back to your upbringing in San Antonio, Texas. What was life like for you as a little one? Um, yeah, so I'm a fifth-generation Texan. I was born in San Antonio and then raised kind of in New Orleans for a few years and then Washington, Washington D.C. for a couple of years and then Houston, Um Houston kind of made home in Texas, um, where again I'm from. Um, and life was good. I'm the oldest of four. I have, we're all four years apart. Um, I've got a younger brother, Jason, and twin sisters um, who work with me now, Ashley and Barrett. Mm. And, you know, it, it's, it was a big, kind of loud, crazy, great, sometimes hard family yeah. life. Um, and, you know, it was good. A lot of extended family. My dad is the youngest of six. We're the smallest family. So I have like, I don't even know, 110 something first cousins. Like, um, yeah, so it's, it was big and rowdy and fun and raised in, very, in, a, in a very Texas sensibility, um, which is the irony of being a vulnerability totally. researcher because, yes, yeah, so I think like so many people, um, I was raised where courage was not an option. You know, it was a very high family value. You had to be brave, but you weren't allowed to be vulnerable. And so now, you know, many, many years later and 400,000 pieces of data later, I know that there is no courage about vulnerability. So it got tricky. You know, it was, it was tricky, Um, but it was good. And it's fun because I think my parents incredibly, incredibly loving um, and very imperfect. Mm. The thing that they taught me the most is they have never stopped learning. You know, like I have this great story. Um, my dad was in San So my parents were divorced and remarried and my husband's parents were divorced and remarried and everyone lives in San Antonio except for my mom and her husband live here in Houston. Mm-hmm. And so I was in San Antonio with, uh, and I'm married to Steve and he's a pediatrician and we had two like incredibly amazing kids, Alan and Charlie. 
Um, and Ellen's a sophomore in college and Charlie's a seventh grader. And when Ellen was like four or five, we were at my dad's house and my dad was just, you know, just kind of exactly what you would expect. Suburban, yes. you know, drive a suburban or a truck. I, I, we had like 12 suburbans in our lives. Our pickup trucks, you know, baseball cap, coffee, candy wrappers on the dashboard, cowboy hat in the back seat, um, boots and jeans. And so we were sitting in his living room and Ellen was watching Dora the Explorer. And I said, hey, babe, um, it's time to go to bed now. So let's turn off the TV and say goodnight. And all the grandparents got to pick their names. My dad picked Mufasa from The Lion King, of course. Um, Power. So I said, why don't you come? Yeah, why don't you tell Mufasa goodnight? And Ellen says, no, I'm going to keep watching Dora the Explorer. And I said, Ellie. Um, and, you know, and Steve and I were very much into choice theory with young kids. Like, Ellen, you have two choices. You can turn off Dora the Explorer and head up the stairs so we can get tucked in. Or I'll turn off the TV. And if I turn off the TV and I have to pick you up and take you upstairs, you're going to lose your privileges to watch Dora the Explorer. <laughs> and my dad was watching. Yes. And he goes, damn, sis. <laughs> what are you raising a hostage negotiator? Um, and I just started laughing. I'm like, dad, this is kind of yes. the way we do it. And he, yeah, and he was just like, yeah, there, we, we didn't have time. There were six of us like, like get your butt in the car. You're in trouble. Yes. Save here. So, but that, yeah. But the great thing was the next day I went out to have lunch with a friend of mine, San Antonio, while my dad was babysitting Ellen. And when I got back, he was like wringing wet from sweat. And he was standing in the driveway with Ellen, who was like, I really want to ride my bike now. I want to ride more. And my dad said, Ellen, you got two choices. We can go inside and take a break. Or I'm going to have to put the bike in the garage, and that's a dumbass choice. I was like, oh, God, Dad. He's growing, Brene. He's but growing. He was totally. And my parents are like, Every book I write, they read it and, you know, and we butt heads on some things and, you know, but he's, they're, they're just, they've really taught me that it's never, you're always learning and it's never yeah. too late. And it's, it's, and then there's that moment, of course, when you become your parents. That's hard too. <laughs> well, for me, and as I've followed your career, it's very easy to, uh, call out what's right or wrong in our parents or really in anybody else. But one of the cool things you've done mm -hmm. is you've talked about that, not in a judgmental way, but just as a matter of factly. But then you've also said, and by the way, they are the recipients of the life that was given to them. And my father grew up essentially without yeah. a father. My mother's mother was an alcoholic and this informs how they show up and how they come together and then how they parent. And I think that idea of understanding our stories is so core, Brene, to everything you do. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I always say as a researcher, you know, stories are just data with a soul. Like, um, our stories are intensely, intensely important because, you know, for the ones that we want to change, and we all have stories that we want to change, you can't write a new ending to a story that you have not owned. You know, and so, and what a lot of us do is we orphan these parts of ourselves that don't fit with the role that we want to play or how we want our neighbors or how we want the C-suite or how we want, you know, the people at church to see us. 
But the truth is we all, you know, if you're paying, you know, if you pay attention, everyone has a story that'll break your heart. You know, and so we all want the chance to own our stories, be imperfect, love the imperfect people in our lives, and also have the potential to rewrite an ending that's that's our ending. But I think what I see so much is that people stand outside of their story. Mm -hmm. They reject their story and then they hustle for their worthiness. Mm. So I want to come back to that. I I made a note in, uh, in my sheets that I want to talk specifically about that before we get there though. I know as part of your own story that you've kind of tripped your way forward, like, like the rest of us, but you've, you had, you didn't have it easy growing up. Eighth grade, I understand that you missed the opportunity of being selected for a team. And this sounds yeah. um, maybe for us adult listeners, oh, it's minor, Brene, get over it. And yet when you're in eighth grade, it's not minor. It's a really big deal. So take us back to that moment. What happened and how did it affect the rest of your life, Brene? Yeah, it was a big moment that I read about, I guess, and I think maybe Braving the Wilderness, which is a book on belonging. And it was an interesting story because I kind of was raised um, that, you know, the story I knew until the story I knew until I was in my twenties was that my dad was a quarterback and my mom was the head of the drill team and they went to high school together and it was like Greece, like they mm-hmm. broke into song. I mean, that's, that's the story I knew. And so I tried out for the, you know, the high school drill team in eighth grade. And this was like the most important moment. And we had moved a lot. Um, and we had moved in fourth grade, sixth grade and eighth grade. And so I didn't have a real friend group because we had just moved to, back to Houston um, like six weeks before school ended, eighth grade ended, which was also a terrible time. And so I thought, man, I could get some belonging if I could make these, if I could make the Bear Cadet drill team. And you have to understand, this is Friday Night Lights, baby. This is Texas football. This is, you know, 5A, number mm-hmm. one high school football. And the, the, the drill team has got the white cowboy boots and they wear wigs and little cowboy hats and blue satin outfits with fringe. I was like, this is the ticket to a sense of belonging. Yeah. And so... I tried out. I didn't make it. And I think the story that I tell in Braving the Wilderness was a really, it was, it was profoundly difficult and, and shaping moment for me. But I think I told it because of things I had seen in the research. So the story I tell is that we drove up to my high school and all the numbers of the people who made it, you wore a number when you tried out were posted. And, um, and I still remember I was 62 and I was reading, it was like 58, 59, 60, 64, 66. And I just remember rereading thinking there must yeah, be a mistake. <laughs> and yeah, we we're 62. And this, like this, this beautiful, like perfect girl was standing there next to me. And I knew she was one of those popular girls in eighth grade. And I remember her standing there and screaming. And I remember her running toward her car and her dad grabbing her and twirling her around. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, and in my, in the station wagon (laughs) that I walked up to, not only were both my parents, but all my siblings, because we were leaving, we were leaving that Friday afternoon to drive to San Antonio. Um, actually I think to go to a rosary that night. And so I got in the car and I started crying and neither one of my parents said anything. Mm. And they, they didn't say like, I wish they would have said, you know, damn those bear cadets. They are no good. And <laughs> you were the best. And you know, but our, our, that was so hard or whatever. 
uh, but they didn't say anything. And I remember when I was studying belonging, I went to a middle school and we did focus groups and I asked these young kids, tell me, tell me the difference between, do you think there's a difference between belonging and fitting in? And these kids were so crystal clear. They said, you know, a sense of belonging is when you want to be somewhere and they want you there too. Fitting in is when you're trying really hard to be a part of something, but they don't really want you there. Mm. And so it really started to inform my research on the differences between belonging and fitting in, which are the differences between being yourself and acclimating and try and looking for acceptance. But in every middle school focus group we did, someone would invariably say, but you know what, miss, you know, what's harder than not fitting in at school is not fitting in at home. When you don't belong at home, there's nothing worse than that. And every time some brave kid would say that in one of these focus groups, five or six or eight or nine of the other kids would burst into tears. Some of the boys would stand up and walk out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I told that story because that was the moment I felt like I didn't belong at home. Like I had cool parents that were super popular and awesome, and I didn't sit there. So it, and it was painful. When we in middle school or eighth grade for you or high school or for the rest of us as we uh, mature through life, feel like we don't belong, what are some of the attitudes and mindsets and behaviors that we then take on that are unhealthy? So for me, it was interesting. It was the last thing I ever tried out for. Hmm. And that's saying something because I was a pretty serious athlete um, and a competitive swimmer and I played competitive tennis. But when I got to high school, I just didn't put my, I stopped putting myself out there. I just stopped. I couldn't take the vulnerability. And it's really interesting because, you know, people think that belonging, they confuse belonging and fitting in and true belonging never requires you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. And we can never be, we can never experience a sense of belonging that's greater than our sense of self-worth and our courage to stand alone. Because sometimes, especially today in this crazy polarized world, we have to stand alone. We have to be able to say, I don't agree, or I actually do believe this. And, you know, and so for me, I, you know, and it was hard if you go back because what I didn't know then that I learned later is that my dad was a really good football player mm -hmm. because he was so full of grief and rage because his dad had died when he was 15. And my mom was a straight A student in the valedictorian and the head of the drill team because her mom was an alcoholic and she was really trying to overcompensate because in the fifties, I mean, she wasn't even allowed to have, her friends weren't even allowed to come to my grandmother's house. Mm -hmm. And so you just don't know the stories. And so I think even today, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I do 90% of my work in organizations and, you know, I can be in a fortune 10 company and I still hear almost in, almost in every, without exception, I still hear people who feel like one of the hardest things about work is that they don't belong, mm -hmm. that there are the cool kids and the not cool kids, that there's like, you know, 
there's the server people and the cloud people. There's a, you know, the tenured people and the new people. Um, and so that need to belong is in our DNA. And when we don't have it, you know, in the absence of that belonging, we show up in ways that are normally outside of our integrity and our values. Brene, you're sharing so vulnerably your own stories. And I find it like a dichotomy yeah. that you, um, you're a very private person, you know, but here you are sharing. You're also an introvert, but you spend an awful lot of time in front of stadiums full of people. You, um, you're passionate, passionate, passionate about your spouse and your babies, but you travel a bit for work. You know, you spend some time in the grind, you work really hard. How do you mesh this stuff up where you can do extraordinary work and take care of yourself and take care of the things and people that matter most to you? I do it imperfectly, first of all. I mean, really imperfectly. And there, you know, I think I have a line and I'm super clear about the line. So I share what's vulnerable with people if I think it helps illustrate what I'm learning through the data and if the story I think helps people feel less alone but I don't share what's intimate mm -hmm. and you won't see pictures a lot of you won't see really a lot of pictures or any you know my kids um if I tell a story that involves my family at work uh, in, in a book or something I have vetted it with them and talked to them about it and I'm very careful not even to ask very often to do that um because I'll have a I have I, you know, I have a powerful narrative because people know my work. And so I don't want that to overshadow my family, being able, my kids, especially being able to write their own story. So I'm careful. And the thing is that, you know, I am in the grind sometimes and I'm on the road, but not very much. I mean, mm -hmm. I only go out compared to some of the people that we work with. Like I only go out maybe twice a month. Mm. Um, and I don't have, I think it's a product of middle age. I think this is the gift of maybe my age. Um, I am not driven by bright, shiny things. And so when I get these incredible opportunities, um, I remember being, so. I remember being like when I went to go do Super Soul Sunday mm -hmm. with Oprah and it was an incredible, incredible experience. And she's like, such a, not only is she just a hero to me about the way she's changed people's lives, but she's also an amazing leader. I mean, she, she leads right. huge teams of people and she is, she's got an incredible leadership style, which she has taught me a lot and mentored me a lot. And I remember her saying after Super Soul Sunday, some of the people that worked for her were like, listen, there's a real chemistry here and maybe we can talk about future things we can do together. Can you stay another couple of days? And I said, you know what? I can't. Because tomorrow's Thursday and I drive carpool on Thursday. And they were there was just kind of like like laughter and they're like, Oh my God, you're serious. And I'm like, Yeah, I drive carpool on Thursdays and it's a really important thing for me because it's when I really hear what the kids are talking about. It's like this front seat you know, it's like this front seat confidential. Like I really it's an important thing to me and it's a real part of my norm. And so they were like okay, that's awesome. Can we hook up on Friday on the phone or something? And I was like, yeah, that's great. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not perfect at it. And mm -hmm. it's really important that people hear that. I don't have it. I don't have it all figured out. Um, 
I tell a story in a new book about a flight, missing a flight yeah. or not missing a flight, but a flight getting canceled on a hugely important day for me. Um, Cause it was my daughter's final field hockey game of her high school career. And being literally under a rack of t-shirts and the life is good shirt <laughs> store at the airport sobbing. Um, there's sacrifices, but I think what I've learned with my family is my kids don't need to me to apologize for working. They need to see me be strong and contribute and do something I love. And then they need me to be present when I'm home. That's awesome. And so, yeah, that's what I try to do. And I have to say this, like, women, I mentor a lot of young women. They always say like, what's, how do you balance this? And I said, man, 90% of it is having the right partner. Like you've got to have a partner that you've got to have a partner who shines when you shine, not one who, you know, no, no bushels over the, you know, over the candles here. Like, Mm -hmm. and so Steve and I, you know, Steve and I've been married for 30 years or no, I guess we didn't together for 30 years, married for 24 or something. Um, and he's, you know, he's, we're just super supportive. And our greatest hack, I'll share this hack with you because it's like, it's a total life hack for me, is someone once said, the worst advice you can ever give someone who's getting married is it should be 50-50. Um, because it never works that way. And they said a solid partnership is one where when you have 20, they can cough up 80. And when they have 20, they can depend on you for 80. And mm-hmm. so now what we do, you know, when I come home from a trip sometimes, which I think can be easier than staying home and <laughs> running, running every, the house stuff. Yeah. Is, you know, I'll walk in the back door and I'll be like, I have 20. And he's like, all right, I'm topped off at 15. I'm like, okay, <laughs> so we're missing, we're missing, we're missing 65%. And so we know if that number is about a hundred, that the only way to do it is kindness, patience, and grace. That's awesome. We have to give that to ourselves and to each other. Your career and your family's career, if you will, really transformed in 2010 with the TED Talk. Did Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that being as bold and as vulnerable and as real as you were during that talk would have the impact that it had, not only on that audience, but on more than 30 million other that have checked it out subsequently? No, I mean, I got off that stage and I was like, because it was an experiment. I was like, totally. I'm going to try being vulnerable while talking about vulnerability. And I was like, God, that kind of sucked. I would, I, I'm going to go back to like my armored researcher variables mitigating subconsciousness. You know, like I'm going to go back to my like armor stuff. And I just couldn't believe it. I just, and now it's terrible because now like the, the litmus test is like, if I feel nauseous when I'm done, I've probably done a good job. <laughs> um, if it was, you know, and if it was no sweat, and it was easy. I, maybe I didn't do what I should have done. And it's not about disclosure. Right. You know, cause some of the greatest most daring leaders I've seen disclose very little, but they're vulnerable. They'll sit in uncertainty. They'll, you know, they'll yes. reset after failure. They'll own this set mistakes. And so I just think, there was part of me, honestly, John, that was like, oh my gosh, this works. Like, like vulnerability is courage. T- tell me more about that. You, you, the, 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 my favorite quote on vulnerability from you, and I'm going to page down to find it right now, 
is, here it comes, and I want you to tell me what this means in layman's terms. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope and empathy and accountability and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. There's a lot there. Tell me what that means to you. Well, I think like most people, I was raised to believe that vulnerability is weakness and vulnerability has a really simple definition. It's just the emotion that we experience in times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. When we feel uncertain, we've we've taken a risk or we feel at risk or we feel emotionally exposed, like someone sees something real and emotional in us. And so for those of us who were raised, I mean, and it's 90% of the people we've interviewed, um, to believe that vulnerability is weakness, we armor up. We, you know, we self-protect. And so to me, what I've learned is that vulnerability is not just, you know, people say, I don't want to be vulnerable because it's the gooey center of these like bad emotions, like Mm -hmm. grief and appointment, fear. And it's really the center of all emotion. And to not be vulnerable because we think it's weak is to foreclose on everything that's important in our lives. I mean, vulnerability, I mean, vulnerability is loving somebody, Mm you know, really is, you know, there's the most vulnerable thing I've ever done in my whole life is be a parent. <laughs> like it's, it's excruciatingly and beautifully vulnerable. Um, you know, and then when we talk about work, it's like, you know, I used to do this whole evangelist thing where I'd be like, really y'all vulnerability is so important. And now I've got it down to like this one question that I ask audiences all the time, which came from, I was doing some work with special forces at Fort Bragg. And I said, you know, here's a definition of of vulnerability, uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Is there any act, have you ever seen an act of courage or engaged in an act of courage in your own life on the battlefield off that didn't require uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure? And it was complete silence. And finally, this young man said, no, ma'am, three tours. There is no courage without vulnerability. And now I just ask people, you know, look, I'll stop telling you to lean into vulnerability when you give me an example of courage mm-hmm. that didn't require putting yourself in uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And, and they can't. And God, they try. I mean, like, I, right, of course. You know, they really try. And I've worked with, you know, the Astros and the Seahawks and the military. And these, these people are like taking me up on the up. They, they're huddling and discussing it. They're, they're trying hard to come up with something. Well, as, as a Cardinal um, fan, I need you to stop working with the Astros. Okay. Like this is, um, it's not helping our cause in the Midwest. <laughs> Switching gears just a little bit. I, I've, I've oh. shared the stage with you a couple of times. I uh, had the great honor of hearing you live at Southwest Airlines among some other events. I've seen you through video at least speak many, 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 many times, including last January. I think you spoke at the cathedral in Washington. And I could see that you were a little anxious before you started. It was awesome. It was real. It was vulnerable. Yeah. But the the most vulnerable and the most um, scared, but I mean that as, as praise, the most real I think I've ever seen you was a Facebook Live presentation that you did after Charlottesville. Can, can you walk us through what you were feeling before you hit 
boom, start on that tape? And why, why was it so real? Why was your voice so honest that time? Yeah, that was so hard. Cute. Jeez, that was hard. Um, because I didn't want to do it. Um, you know, and because, you know, when you wade into conversations about gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, you know, like any of the, any of the issues, immigration, when you wade into those issues, you're going to have your butt handed to you. Like Mm -hmm. you're, you know, but, but, but here's the thing. And you and I both work in organizations to opt out of difficult conversations about race and gender and class and everything else that we need to be talking about to opt out of that. Because you can't do it perfectly or be comfortable is the definition of privilege. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd, rather, I'd really rather have my butt handed to me and try than be afraid and tuck tail. Like, I just cannot do that. And so I think what you heard in my voice was, I know I'm not going to do this perfectly. And I know there's going to be criticism. And I know that when it's done... And they're going to be scary things. They're going to be things that, you know, people will say that like, well, you said this and that sounded racist. Or I think that, you know, you're not aware of all of your privileged blind spots. And I can tell because you said this. And I think that's hard for us, but I'd rather be a part of the, I'd rather contribute than criticize mm. and be safe. Like I just, it just goes against everything I've learned and everything I do in my work. And so so it's hard. I mean, it's really hard. Well, and, you know, it sounds to me you're I, you're you hear, you hear fear. Yeah, but you, a fear, but moving through it, which is courage in action and daring greatly, which I think then pivots into your most recent work, which is dare to lead, uh, brave work, tough conversations, whole hearts. Brene, I just finished reading that over the weekend. It came out Tuesday last week. It's a phenomenal book that any leader ought to read. First question is this: Why'd you write it? I think there, I mean, I think there are a couple reasons. One, I think I needed to capture for myself everything that I've learned, especially over the last seven years, I've spent time just intimately working with leaders and, and teams, looking at performance, how do you lead, what do the, what do transformational leaders have in common? And so it has changed me so fundamentally because I'm a leader, I'm a founder, I'm a CEO. And let me tell you, studying leadership is so much easier than leading. <laughs> um, and I, and God, I mean, like leading is, is it's, it's up there with like partnering and parenting in terms of how hard I think it is. I, I mean, it, like, yeah, it's hard. And so I think I wrote it for one for selfishly, cause I wanted to put everything down that I've learned and be able to use it as a resource myself. And you know, we asked all of these leaders one question, kind of what is the future of leadership? Like, what is it that you're looking for? What scares you the most about not being able to find in leaders? Like, what, what's missing? And across, you know, family-owned businesses, small startups to Fortune 10 companies, the answer was the same. We need more courage in our leaders. And... It was so 
powerful for me to, you know, and it's like, you know, you look at the, you know, we ask them, okay, what, what, what do you see as barriers to courage? You know, the number one barrier for sure to courageous leadership is the unwillingness or inability to have tough conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just not gives good feedback, not be honest about things. And, you know, in, in addition to that, there's the inability to not reset after a failure or disappointment. There's, you know, blaming instead of accountability. There's just list. Mm-hmm. And what I think, what I think was really interesting because we have this list of 10 things, you know, these 10 barriers to daring leadership in the book. And then I expected like what gets in the way of daring leadership. And it's like, Oh, people are afraid. It's fear. And then we go back to all these really brave leaders and we're like, so how do you avoid fear? And they're like, avoid fear. That's right. Move into it. I'm afraid all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm afraid all day, every day. And we're like, fear is not the barrier to courageous leadership. And it was kind of like, you know, hypothesis struck down. And then what we realized is the biggest barrier to daring leadership is not fear. It's self-protection. It's the way we armor up. And when, and you can't lead from an armored place. Like I've seen you talk, like you're vulnerable. You talk about your story. You talk about hard things. You talk about real things. And if you can't do hard and real and vulnerable, you cannot effectively lead, especially as we move into the future where leadership that doesn't require courage will be done by machines and AI. Mm-hmm. And what's left will be a unmeetable, I think, need right now for courageous human leadership where there's just not enough of it. And I, I want to just call out the, the definition of leader that you call out in the book, because I think it really does affect uh, our listeners here. Sometimes when people use the term leader and I'm sitting in my station wagon with four car kids behind me, I'm thinking this may not apply to me. So let me share with you Brene Brown's definition of leader, because you will recognize listeners that this is you specifically she's referring to. A leader is anyone who takes responsibility for finding potential in people and processes and has the courage to develop that potential. This is all of us. And I recognize leaders are oftentimes in the C-suite, or at least they better be. Uh, But it's everybody from the custodian to the executive and everybody in between that matters so profoundly. And the leader that you're writing to in this book is the reader themselves always, regardless of the role that we are living at that time. A hundred percent. And let me tell you, I've I've spent two 10 hour days and and not not laid an eye on a leader. And then I've spent two hours in a factory and been surrounded by them. Like it has nothing to do with position. Right. And, you know, it has, yeah. And it's been interesting because I know we're both baseball fans, but one of the things that I found interviewing professional sports teams, some college sports teams is one of the greatest predictor variables of a good season is not the coach or the manager. It's how strong are the player leaders on the field. Mm. <laughs> you know, and you can track, I know at least, you know, we won't get into baseball, but you, you can track Astro history by that. I think you can track all history by that family, community, cultural, yeah. political totally. teams, but totally. it, it, you're, this is, that's why 
defining a leader, owning the fact that it is you and I and everybody else, and then deciding, so what do we want to do with this new role? How do we want to elevate the folks that we serve and impact through our lives? You you, uh, you talked beautifully, section three of your book, this, this gap between arming up and daring leadership. And you talked about the 16 differences between the two. And we, we could spend, if you want, Brene, we could spend three more hours unpacking all 16, but why don't we just talk about <laughs> one right now? Because I think you're pretty busy in the middle of yeah. book launch. Um, I'd like to talk about hustling for our worth versus knowing our value. You, you say when we armor up as one. leaders that we, we hustle to prove our worth to everyone else, including ourselves. But when we are daring leadership, when we're really embracing that mantle that we know our value. Talk about the gap between the two and how we pivot into knowing our value. I think this has been one of the most, this has probably been one of the biggest kind of needle movers in my own leadership. I mean, if you went to all the people that reported to me right now and you said, tell me what value you bring to this organization. I think they would be able to tell you verbatim what we agreed on in the series of conversations was their real value. Um, because when people are unsure, when we're unsure about how we're contributing and we don't see meaning in our, meaningfulness in our contributions and we don't understand how what we're doing makes things better or moves us more toward a mission or a win or whatever we're doing, then it, we just by default just as part of a social species, and we don't understand our contribution to the collective, we start hustling for our worth. Mm -hmm. We, we overemphasize our importance. We, you know, the ego kind of goes crazy and is like, look at me, I'm here. And, you know, if someone, you know, asks a question that we don't have an answer to, we might raise our hand first and BS our way through an answer because we start hustling to make sure that people think we're worthy. When, when I believe we're inherently worthy, just um, spiritual beliefs that we're inherently worthy because we're here, and that it's important to take time to, to figure out what is the value that we bring. And, you know, and I, I think I was confused about that in my own life for a long time. And even around the leadership work, I was like, you know, I did some consulting, I did some advising work with you know, kind of C-suite leaders. And I was like, God, I really felt like I was hustling the whole time in some way. It was really, and I've never talked about this before, but I'll share it with you. Like, I really felt like I was like, you know how like even you can be like 50 and you can still like think, I see myself like in a movie. Like when, is, mm-hmm. when are the grown-ups going to get here? Yes. Like, you know, and I was then what I realized is my value is very tied to my purpose, which is, I'm really good at making connections between the seemingly unconnectable and giving that language that so people, so people can recognize themselves and their experiences. Like that's what I'm really good at doing. And I ought not be doing anything that makes me feel like I have to be proving all the time. Like there's something not good in that for me. So I think there, I think the the whole idea of knowing your value versus hustling hustling for your worth, it's it's toward it's inward work. It's understand what your value is, understand what your contribution is, and also if you're leading people. Again, coaching, you know, people direct reports at work. 
make sure you have conversations with them and acknowledge and talk through, here's where I see you adding incredible value. Where do you see yourself adding value? Mm. Like make sure people are clear on the value they, be, they bring because there's nothing worse than the behaviors that show up when people don't know. People stop being learners. They start being knowers. People start putting more emphasis on being right than doing things right. You know, people have to be important rather than do important things. And so if you see some of those tendencies in yourself, which I have definitely in the span of my career felt the need to be the knower and important and be right, that's a sign that you're not clear on your value. Is there a, an exercise or questions you can ask yourself or a, a process that you would encourage folks to go through to better understand their own value? The reason I asked you about that question is because it hit home with me, Brene, and knowing your story as well as I do, I, I knew it was close to your heart too. And I would suggest it's just about affecting every one of our listeners. I think the reason why the baseball fields are as crowded as they are all weekend long in the soccer fields and you have parents sprinting from place to place to elevate their children so maybe they can have good lives is because we're still trying to prove how worthy we are. And uh, we can't oh, yeah. we can't become the leader I think that we we inherently are until we stop doing that. And we can't encourage our kids to do this unless we model it first. So for all of us listening right now with our pens and hearts wide open, what, what is one thing that we can do to say, gosh, man, you really are worthy and uh, slow down a little bit, embrace the gift of your life? You know, I think that um, I will say this. We have a free downloadable worksheet, the, the workbook that goes along with all the chapters in the book. So we've got an exercise in there. And one of the big things that I look for, and I'll walk you through it in case you're not a download worksheet person, but is there's the four P's. You're always proving, pleasing, perfecting. I mean, these are, you know, these are the, and, and also polling people. What do you think? Do you think I should do that? Do you think I'm good at this? What do you think about this? And so think about the places from, you know, this is, this is, you want to hear that this is the weird thing we found. Mm -hmm. When you're in your zone and when you're in an area where you feel like you, you have what we call grounded confidence, that's not blustery BS arrogance. It's just a sense of grounded confidence. Those are the areas where you don't have to be, you, you don't have to be the knower, where you're naturally curious, you're willing to be the learner. You don't have to say, yeah, I already know all about that. You're like, I don't know anything. Tell me more. I mean, one of the biggest telltale signs of grounded confidence is curiosity. Because where we, when we know we have value, we give our, ourselves permission not to know everything, mm -hmm. not to prove everything, not to please everybody. No proving. You know, it's just so, I think, look for the areas where you're seeing, where, you know, where are you most likely to be proving, perfecting, pleasing, polling people? And where are you most likely to be curious? You don't have to be the knower. You want to do what's right. More That's more important to you than being right. And start thinking about those things for yourself. We also have a values exercise, and I think it goes hand in hand because one of the things that the most transformative leaders had in common is right. they could name mm -hmm. not only off the bat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they knew the values. Like for me, it's faith and courage. 
those are the two most, those are my two most important values. And I have other values that are important, like love and family, but faith and courage are where all the other values like family and, you know, love and stewardship are, are forged and tested. Um, and so I think also being clear on your values is super helpful to move you out of the hustling and toward the grounded confidence. So Ms. Brian, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one final question before we pivot into the live inspired seven. And, yes, sir. You know, with, you may not have heard, but it's a pretty divisive political climate that we live in. You may not have heard, but there's an heard. epidemic of loneliness that we all are struggling with. Apparently we long to belong and we can't yet quite figure out how we are feeling uh, negative about tomorrow. We think the best days are behind us on and on and on and on. And on top of all of this, we have struggles in our own life. So that's the setup to the question. Uh, July 10th, you're recording Braving the Wilderness. Uh, you, you have an accident where you step into a glass wall and you seriously injure yourself. Ser like seriously, it's a real deal here. Concussion and everything else. And just as you're starting to bounce back, Hurricane Harvey starts dumping feet of water on top of your home, on top of your business, on top of your neighbors, on top of your community, flooding out Houston. It kind of goes from bad to worse. Brene, when, you, when you're struggling in life, whether it's uh, the black eye and the book is behind schedule and the rain is falling and there's more forecasts of rain to come, what do you do to pivot out of the negativity back into optimism and hope and courage? They sound mutually exclusive, but it's really a, like a key thing for me, which is I try to give myself permission to complain with perspective and practice gratitude, <laughs> which means I, I'll call a friend, you know, and Harvey, I called a friend and said, you know, my God, you know, like the water's, you know, a foot away from our house, our neighbors, you know, Steve's in a kayak rescuing dogs and people and everything's gone to hell and I'm barely over this concussion. And I give myself permission to feel what I'm feeling and talk about it. But as soon as I've done that and I feel like I've been heard and I feel like it's, I need you to say it. I really go into how can I, you know, what can I do to help and what am I grateful for? Mm. And, you know, I think for me, I have a really serious, serious gratitude practice um, because that emerged from my earliest research that the people who have the most capacity for joy practice gratitude. It's not an attitude of gratitude. It's not a thoughtful gratitude. It's a practice. So I write things down every day. Um, we, we sit, we, we sing grace um, every time we eat as a family and then we go around the table and everyone says one thing they're grateful for, no matter how crappy their day is. Um, and so I don't deny myself the right to feel, I, you know, I, I call it piss and moan with perspective. Like, like I'm going to complain while maintaining some perspective mm -hmm. about what life looks like for some other people right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to try to be a helper. I'm going to be grateful and try to be a helper. You, what you're saying there is lived out in you, by the way. And, and when I, I wrote on fire, 
the dream was to have my favorite author at some point maybe say, yeah, I think it's an okay book. Two days before it went to print, Brene, you came back with a note endorsing it wildly, praising it beautifully. And uh, one thing you, you marked was how uh, our writing of gratitude uh, impacted you and, and the uh, fact yeah. that, you know, my, my, my dad's story and uh, the way that it has touched his life, Parkinson's disease and how he remains extremely grateful. My dad practices complaining with perspective and then actively practicing gratitude, even today as he's essentially almost nonverbal. And so I just want you to know the impact that uh, as we are getting ready to go to print a couple years back, knowing that Brene Brown was behind it, what that meant to our team and what it means to our readers today. So I want to pivot from what you've shared already into the Live Inspired 7 as we wrap up this conversation. Number one is what is the best book, Brene Brown, that you have ever read? Well, I'm going to say The Alchemist because I always go back to it. I love that. What was your favorite? For those who have not uh, read The Alchemist, and I I'm underline that baby. Parable. What 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 was your favorite? Like, what was the main takeaway from The Alchemist? When you're on the right path, the universe conspires to help you. Brene Brown, I agree with that. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brightly today? Carefree. Mm. If your home caught fire, or in your case, flooded out, and all living things are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and to grab one item, what one item would you grab? Photos. If you could sit on a bench overlooking Photo a beach. Of- Go ahead. Yeah. Photos? No, photos, and I had, some, I had some crosses made out of the spindles of my kids' um, baby cribs. That's awesome. So the crosses and the photos are coming out with you. If you could sit on a bench with those crosses, with uh, with that album, and have a long conversation with anyone, anybody, living or dead, who would you like to have that nice long visit with? Maya Angelou. Hmm. What's the best advice that Maya Angelou or anyone else that you looked up to ever gave you? When we know better, we do better. Hmm. Brene, down to two more. You've almost run the gauntlet. What's the, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? You don't have to act so tough. It's okay to be afraid. Uh, the courageous Brene Brown, it has been said that all great people, and we have one on the line right now, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She contributed more than she criticized. Uh Renee Brown, you have been in the middle of the arena for a long, long time, reminding mm-hmm. the rest of us to come out of the stands, to uh, to participate fully, to stand up and to lead forward. It's been an honor to be your friend and to spend a little bit of the time today uh, on this podcast with you. God, thank you so much, John. And um, I I can't wait to see you back out there sometime. We'll, we'll, we'll share a stage again, and I can't wait just to give you a big hug. My friends, for those of you just hearing this right now, this is Brene Brown. She has just written a phenomenal book called Dare to Lead, Brave Work, Tough Conversations, Whole Hearts. You want to check it out. It is worthy as all of her work is. Brene Brown, thank you for the time. And my friends, thank you for that for your time as well. For this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day live inspired my friends i want to thank you for being part of our live inspired podcast community and as much as i love the guests that we have on 
I appreciate even more the impact of their stories, their messages, their lives on yours. So I'm asking you to take just a moment to do me a big favor. I'd like you to take a survey so that we can better understand what it is about our Live Inspired podcast that you love, what's working for you, maybe what's not working perfectly for you, what more you'd like to hear about, and maybe a special guest you'd like us to bring on. You can take this survey by visiting me online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Again, here we go. johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Come on. I really want these podcasts to be as best as they can. I want them to challenge your thinking and elevate your lives. So take just a moment right now. Help us make this better, not only for you, but for our entire community. Your feedback matters. So go again right now to John O'Leary, inspires.com forward slash podcast.